First Timothy chapter five, beginning in verse 17, Paul writing to Timothy says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those who are otherwise cannot be hidden. Paul has been patiently giving instructions to Timothy about the important issues that relate to the church. The letter began with instructions about the church and its message. Teach sound doctrine. Preach the glorious gospel. Defend the faith, it said in chapter 1. Then Paul speaks of the church and its members in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and the church and the minister in chapter 4 and Paul has addressed the issue of the saints in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 widows in verses 3 through 16 and now his focus is going to be on church elders or leaders in verses 17 through 25 Paul will deal with the subject of respect and remuneration for the church leaders in verses 17 and 18. The issue of accountability and discipline of a church leader in verses 19 and 20. And then Paul gives Timothy several charges concerning the conduct and the behavior of church leaders. Ministers are to serve, judge, evaluate. Rule without partiality in verse 21. Guard ordination and guard yourself in verse 22. Take care of yourself physically in verse 23. Leave the judgment of, of some to the Lord in verses 24 and 25. And then Paul is going to give two words. One will be general. One will be specific. Elders are worthy of double honor in verses 17 and 18. They must never be unfairly or unjustly accused in verses 19 and 20 and 24 and 25. They must be impartial, verse 21. They have to be proved before they're ordained in verse 22a. They have to keep themselves pure at the end of verse 22. And then Timothy is told to drink a little wine for the sake of his stomach and frequent illnesses in verse 23. So in verse 17, it begins with honor. 
and pay the leader. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So I paused for a moment and I thought, I should begin a five-week series on this verse. But I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to, in the most, not superficial, but in the most glancing way, give you at least a few things that you need to take into consideration. When it says, let the elders who rule, it's talking about the office of the ruling elder. These are the servants who are responsible for the daily duties of the church. It may refer to the pastor or the ruling pastor, or the pastors in the church who might also include those who serve in the church in whatever administrative duty or other kinds of duties. So Paul himself uses the term, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine, in part to differentiate between the fact that there are going to be some people who focus on teaching and preaching, there might be others who focus in other areas of church life. Those who labor in the physical tasks associated with leading the congregation. And you should note quickly three things. Number one, honor and respect means to acknowledge and recognize. I'm going to suggest to you that it means hold the pastor close to your heart and their condition. And the condition, of course, look what it says, let the elders who rule well. There is a condition. The condition isn't those who rule selfishly or poorly or inappropriately. By the way, the word rule, prostimi, isn't really a regal word. It isn't like the pastor is supposed to have a throne and a, and a crown and a, and a scepter. The word is actually more of a general term that means to oversee, to supervise, to look after. When I was a kid, one of my very first jobs was working at a gas station. And it was my job to rule the gas station. I had to open it. I had to close it. I had to clean its bathrooms. I had to take in the money and count the receipts and make sure that they reconciled. And so actually that's probably more like what the term means. It means to oversee. It means to supervise. It means to look after. And here the expression I'm going to suggest to you doesn't mean to control others. It doesn't mean to manipulate others. It doesn't mean to command others. But rather, it means to supervise or oversee by example. In other words, the example is going to prove the oversight much better than anything else. So the person worthy of double honor labors and works diligently. Labor here actually means to work in such a way that you break a sweat. It doesn't mean being lazy or superficial. 
And so in that sense, it means to be a hard worker and a diligent worker. It could also mean that the pastors or leaders who labor in the word and the doctrine are differentiated from other pastors or leaders or elders in the church. But again, whatever it means, it means pay the pastor. It means pay respect. It means provide material support. Honor carries with it the idea of not simple respect and esteem, but it means to give what is proper or what is due or what is appropriate. In the ancient world, A.T. Robertson points out that there were numerous examples of soldiers who, depending on the job, would get paid Double. Now, let me tell you what that means. I'm not suggesting for a moment that you double my salary. What I'm suggesting is that sometimes the soldiers who would go out for battle were given hazard pay. There were certain jobs and there were certain tasks that were going to be more difficult than other tasks. If a single denarius was the payment of a soldier, a scribe would receive two denarius a day because the scribe could read and write. So again, is this an argument to pay the pastor twice what everyone else gets? I'm going to suggest to you that that's probably what the, pa the passage does not mean. But whatever else the passage means, it means that people who work at the church should be given an ample salary, an adequate salary, a sufficient salary. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that those who teach from the word should live from the word in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, where he talks more at length about this. Paul also warned of the dangers of an unhealthy preoccupation with money. Remember, he's already talked about that. So it can't mean for the pastor to be completely preoccupied with how much money he's going to make because the Bible has already said that the ruling elder can't be preoccupied with money. Now, a congregation can swing in two different directions that I think are equally harmful. You can elevate the pastor, place him on a pedestal, ignore and excuse his sin. The other is to make sure you kick the pedestal out from under him, stomp his head, find fault and failure in everything. His appearance, dress, the list could go on and on. He tells bad jokes. He does this, he does that. So both of those extremes are kinds of extremes that, that you want to avoid. Churches can't, they must not, overlook pastoral sin. Sometimes shocking and shaming information comes to light about a pastor's behavior. We read about horrible things or we see horrible things or we've been involved in churches where there were horrible things. Extramarital infidelity, theft of church funds, wife or child abuse, drug or alcohol abuse. There's all kinds of things that happen in all kinds of churches and the point that needs to be made is they cannot and they must not be ignored. So support and appreciate your pastor. 
who labors in the word. And again, labor means exactly that, labor. So how can you help? Well, you can encourage the people who serve in the church. Make sure that the elders provide an adequate salary for everyone at the church. Provide emotional support as well. Express appreciation. Provide surprises for the staff from time to time. The point that I think that is being made is that just like everyone else, ministers should know that they're loved and that they're appreciated. And so, that's part of the point. And so in verse 18 it says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, Paul is going to support that view that he just gave, that pastors can be paid by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. But do you realize at the end of the verse, he's quoting Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Now that may not mean a whole lot to you, but it means a whole lot to me because Paul, in quoting Deuteronomy and Luke, refers to both of them as Scripture. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament. By the way, in the ancient world, oxen were often used to pull a millstone crushing, grinding grain for meal, and the oxen were never muzzled. They were allowed to eat as much grain as was necessary to accomplish the task. One Bible writer says, quote, as he grinds and grinds away at the harvest of souls for God and his church, the minister is to be given more than enough financial support, unquote. In the ancient world, the oxen could dip into the grain. But it's not true of the pastor. The pastor can't dip into the finances of the church. There has to be propriety. There has to be accountability. And wise churches don't simply create the appearance of accountability. They have to put in place measures that are really accountable. I remember when Skip and I were first starting out in ministry, and our church grew from a couple of hundred people to a couple of thousand people. And then there was 5,000 people. And then there were 6,000 people. And then there were 7,000 people. And at the time, I was the person who would instruct the people to collect the tithe and then account the tithe and then deposit the tithe and then write the checks for the tithe. And I said to Skip, it, we, it, we can't do this anymore. The person collecting the money and counting the money and writing the check for the money can't be the same person. And Skip said to me, but I trust you. And I said, I trust me too. But that's not the point. We have to have a measure of accountability so that it's on the front page of the Albuquerque urinal. I'm no journal. The, the Jays are, are silent in, in New Mexico. If it's on the front page of the paper, it has to pass the test. And so Churches shouldn't just talk about accountability. They have to have real accountability. So clearly those who serve in the church, remember, they should not be motivated by money. They should be paid a fair wage. Paul refused payment from the churches that he served. 
but he clearly believed that each congregation should offer adequate support for leaders. And again, if you want more information about that, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 4, and Colossians chapter 6, verse 6. And then having said that, just for your edification and information, our church supports me well. My family is blessed and encouraged as we begin our almost the 25th year of ministry here. So that's not an issue. But again, for the people who are listening and for the people who don't go here and for the people who have no idea, we have to be able to talk about these things. And so the other thing is accountability and, and for discipline of the leader. And, and again, you can imagine there are some churches where there's a kind of a loose accountability. But in verse 19... When Paul says to Timothy, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses, it can't mean just simply what it says, which it does, but it must mean that there's some sort of accountability that's available to the leaders. Pastors should try to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. But what happens if the pastor does cause problems? Paul doesn't allow unaccountable behavior. Remember who Timothy is. He is the representative of Paul in this area to the churches. But when people work together, live together, minister together, do projects together, sometimes there's problems and sometimes there's difficulties. So the church and its leaders and its members aren't exempt from mistakes, faults, sins. Criticism finds ample opportunity, but criticism often takes two forms, warranted and unwarranted. Motivations may be improper and impure. Pastors fail to meet expectation. Personalities clash. There's all kinds of things that can happen. But Paul uses the Old Testament standard of two or three witnesses to establish every single fact in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Matthew chapter 18, verse 16. John chapter 8, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. There's ample, ample support biblically that people should be dealt with, but they should be dealt with fairly and appropriately. All charges against the elder should come from at least two or three witnesses. The matter should be given honest consideration. And by the way, do you realize that if most churches would just simply adopt this passage, there would be far fewer church splits. Now again, the matter should be honestly evaluated. There can be no partiality, it says in verse 21. Even with two or three witnesses, that doesn't mean you always render a verdict of guilty. But if there are two or three witnesses and there's something that's happening, it's hard for me to believe that there can be all this smoke and no fire. And so a thorough investigation has to be made when it comes to serious allegations. And we should allow every elder every consideration. Even in our own culture, there's a presumption of innocence until proven guilty. But there is no pastor, there is no leader who is 
above accountability. In other words, being the pastor never, ever, ever, ever gives you permission to sin or take advantage of people. So when Paul says, do not receive an accusation, it doesn't mean ignore serious situations. It doesn't mean ignore or support. It means, I'm going to suggest to you, it carries with it the idea of being careful, of being cautious, rather than rejection. Accusations must be treated fairly and seriously, and when a church fails to handle matters, it can result in serious harm to the church. Books, by the way, have been written about church abuse and clergy abuse. So every single church should have a plan about how to handle grievances, of what happens when something goes wrong or there's a difficulty. And in verse 20 it says, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. When the evidence supports a guilty verdict, the offending officer or leader or ruler or elder has to be dealt with, I'm going to suggest to you, in the presence of all. That means an open rebuke in public. Now again, this passage I don't think is talking about private infractions between people. It's talking about a public failure that affects everyone. And even then, even then, this public censure, I'm going to suggest to you, doesn't necessarily include everyone, but the ruling pastor or the leader. And I'm going to also include what it says at the very beginning of the verse. Those who are sinning. What's interesting about that, those who are sinning, it's in the present tense. The implication being these are men who have refused to admit their wrong, have refused to repent of what is wrong, and have continued in the wrong. And guess what? They're not changing. And that the church has to be informed about it. I'm also going to suggest that those who persist in their sin or fail to repent of their sin when they're in leadership of the church, that the church has an obligation to tell the congregation, to remind them and warn them. And, and he gives the reasons in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. In what sense? Be afraid of the leadership of the church? No. So that they can fear God. So that they can know that just people acting justly. That there should be propriety. And appropriate intervention. And that the pastor and the leaders in the church are not above what the Bible says is their sacred duty. And so he talks about the care and the character of the church leader in this final portion in verses 21 through 25. Paul writing to Timothy says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Again, you're going to note that Paul gives Timothy charges, orders, this isn't a suggestion. This isn't a recommendation. 
This is a lawful order from a superior to a subordinate to carry out a task. And so I'm going to try to help you understand just how powerful this word is. A charge was something that was meant to open your eyes, awaken your mind. It was something that was meant to get your attention. So the charge is directed to the ruling elder, Timothy. I charge you, Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus and the elect angels. Why does he call on God and the Lord Jesus and the elect angels? He's calling on God and Jesus and the elect angels to serve as witnesses to, that will testify, corroborate, support his charge. That's the point. And there is another interesting point. You'll notice that God and the Lord Jesus and the elect angels all serve as different witnesses. Well, what does that mean? Well, again, I'm going to suggest to you, again, it's a, it's a subtle hint and a reminder of the Trinity. That, that, that This doesn't mean that Jesus isn't God. Rather, it, it means just the opposite. Not only is Jesus God, but the Father is different from the Son. And the Son is different from the Spirit. And so, because they're separate witnesses... So are the elect angels. And who are the elect angels? These are the angels who honored and obeyed God rather than rebelled against God. These are the angels who are commissioned by God to watch over the affairs of human beings. So Paul charges Timothy to observe these things. What things? Honor and pay the pastor, verses 17 and 18. But discipline the pastor if he gets out of line in verses 19 and 20. In other words, the pastor, like I repeatedly say, does not have the right to sin. And so in short order, Paul's going to give four charges. Be fair and impartial, verse 21. Guard ordination in verse 22. Care for your body and weaknesses, verse 23. Leave certain judgments to God in verse 24 and 25. And the rest of our study is going to just, in very short order, just give you just a little more thing to think about on those four charges. So he charges him, be fair and impartial, in verse 21. Partiality and prejudice, forbidden. Like a judge... The pastor has to be firm and fair. And again, once, once again, the command reveals the ever-present temptation that is ever before the pastor. Just like all kinds of people experience all kinds of tests and difficulties, the one plague that plagues the pastor is an ongoing temptation to be unfair. Or to be prejudiced. Now again, racial discrimination or, or gravitating people towards people because of their economic circumstances or physical handicaps or whatever it is. In other words, staying clear from someone or approaching someone, it's to be done without partiality. 
there are certain things that must not serve as factors in the decision-making process. So the pastor is welcome to have friends and form partnerships and, and have leaders who are friends. But the pastor must not and cannot show favoritism or partiality, seeking out certain people while ignoring others. And that's the point. Seeking certain people, ignoring other people, seeking only people who can help them, and ignoring people who are perceived to be of no help at all. If the pastor continues in prejudice or discrimination or shows partiality, the pastor's inevitably going to have a real problem and eventually face judgment and discipline. So again, the pastor must never, ever make decisions based on the fear of man, but rather on the fear of God. And so the pastor has to do what's right before God. He has to make the decision that's going to reflect the heart of God and the mind of God on every single matter, not on the basis of how it's going to help or hurt the church. And so, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17, it says... You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring it to me, and I will hear it. And so the pastor is forbidden to refrain from preaching or teaching certain passages for fear that it might upset someone or offend someone. Hugh Latimer was faced with this terrible task when he was called to preach before the king of England. And he received notice that if he preached in a way that was unpleasing to the king, he might wind up in jail. And so Hugh Latimer said exactly what he had to say. And the king didn't throw him in jail. But it isn't always true. Bold people and courageous people will sometimes speak the truth and they'll be rebuked. There was a person who was a very famous television personality who was invited to the White House to pray. And as he began his prayer, he said, Heavenly Father. The president said, Speak up, I can't hear you. And the man looked up from his prayer and he said, I wasn't talking to you. Sometimes it's very, very difficult. But the pastor is forbidden to admire or pay greater attention because of wealth or celebrity or social position or political office. And this doesn't mean the pastor is free to ignore the celebrity or the politician. In other words, this fairness doesn't mean being weird or or aloof, or distant, it means that whether you're with the rich or the poor, whether you're with the blind or the lame, whether you're with people who are powerful and influential, or have what seems like no influence whatsoever, whatsoever you're to treat them the same. In Proverbs 24, 23, these things belong to the wise. It's not good to have respect of persons in judgment. 
And so he says, be fair and impartial in verse 21. And then guard ordination in verse 22. It says, do not lay hands on anyone suddenly or hastily in the original language. Nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Now, oddly enough, we could spend literally weeks on this one verse, but we're not going to. Let me help you think it through. The charge is to guard ordination and then guard oneself. In what sense? The laying on of hands here means the ordination of leaders to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the laying on of hands here is a physical act of recognizing the role and relationship of ruling elders in the church and then a call for them to accomplish what God has called them to do. So the laying on of hands means the ordination. It also may mean the laying on of hands of ministers or pastors who have fallen into sin, who have been disciplined, and now they're seeking restoration to return back to the ministry that they've fallen from. You've got to understand something. During the time of the persecutions, there were people who did all kinds of weird and crazy things, not just moral failure but character failure by refusing to act courageously when persecutions would come and sometimes they would be disqualified from office and then there would be an opportunity to repent of your sin, confess your sin, and then be restored back to the ministry. So whether the charge is to wait patiently in the ordination process or to wait patiently in the restoration process, no matter what the historical context is, the application remains the same. Be patient in the restoration process. Again, when you look at the word hastily or suddenly... What Paul is basically saying is, don't elevate quickly to leadership people who are immature and unproven. Be patient. Young believers need time to mature. Now, does that mean that some young people show remarkable maturation? I think of my friend Greg Laurie, who was the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Riverside at the age of 19. Charles Haddon Spurgeon became the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle at the age of 19. What Greg Laurie and Charles Haddon Spurgeon have in common is that both of their congregations quickly grew to 5,000 people. Now, can you imagine being the pastor of a church with 5,000 people and you're only 21 years old? Are there issues and problems and things that immaturity might have problems handling? Yeah, well, the answer is yes. But what both of those young men did is they found older, wiser people to help negotiate difficult issues. Sometimes young believers haven't always developed the proper tools or skills 
to conquer temptation or refrain from sins that marked their lives as unbelievers. And so if your life and your lifestyle as an unbeliever remains largely unchanged as a believer, then you have every reason to evaluate your life and say, what's going on with me? So the immature, the untested believer would slip back into the old lifestyle and bring shame on Christ and shame to the gospel. So all believers should go through a time of maturation, growth, ordination that precedes ordination. Donald Guthrie writes in his commentary, Undue haste in Christian appointments has led to unworthy men bringing havoc to the cause of Christ, unquote. All of you probably know of a pastor who has failed in some horrible, terrible way. And it hurt everyone. It hurt the church. It hurt his family. It hurt everyone. William Barclay says, before a man gains promotion in business or in teaching or in the army or the navy or the air force, he must give proof that he has earned it and that he deserves it. No man should ever start at the top. A man must give proof that he deserves a position of responsibility and leadership. This is doubly important in the church for a man who is raised to high office, who then fails in it or brings discredit on it, brings dishonor not only on himself, but also on the church. It is a, in a, it's a, it's a critical world. The church in a critical world, the church cannot be too careful in regard to the kind of men whom she chooses to be her leaders. There's certain things that you can't be wrong about. And if you are, the consequences are horrible. So pastors should be encouraged. Now again, let's look at the bright side of the passage. The passage also means that there's forgiveness and restoration for the fallen pastor. The pastor should not be restored suddenly or hastily or reordained suddenly. Ministers are to wait and show evidence of that their repentance is genuine. Rededication and recommitment to Christ is proven. Reunion with Christ is reflected in a godly character and godly living. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was said to have said that a person's repentance should be at least as notorious as their sin. And I think that he's right. So the church doesn't reject or retreat from the brother during a time of repentance and restoration. When people find themselves in difficulty, when they find themselves in trouble, when they find themselves hurt, we're to exercise love and care. We trust, as the famous theologian Ronald Reagan once said, but verify. We trust and verify. Galatians 6.1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. When people get in trouble, when people are in sin, when people are in rebellion and disobedience, the proper way to deal with it is to first educate rather than incriminate. 
It's to remind people the harm that sin does in marriage and in the church. So the minister in the church that ordains is responsible for that ordination. The man or the church that lays hands on a man for ministry who knows that that man is unfit for ministry, that the church is equally as guilty as, as the person that they've ordained. So the church should ordain those people who are qualified and competent and who've exercised the proper kind of character necessary in order to be in the ministry. This is one of the things that's so awful about churches that ordain those who practice homosexual behavior. It isn't just simply the judgment of the Bible that those who practice homosexual behavior are guilty of deep sin, but the deep sin is compounded when a church cooperates with the misguided conclusion that homosexual behavior is not only to not be characterized as sin, but as, as, is to be characterized as something that you celebrate, then again, we are in big, big trouble. And so the church that ordains homosexuals is guilty of the same egregious sin. So this is the meaning of the exhortation. When ordaining men do not become partakers of other people's sins. In what sense? If you ignore their sin, if you pretend like it's not real or that it doesn't matter, then you become a willing participant in the sin. And so Paul's instructions to Timothy is to keep yourself pure. And think about this for just a moment. It isn't just simply an exhortation don't do wrong things. It isn't just simply an exhortation to refrain from egregious sin or to refrain from sexual immorality. It is that, but it's also more. And let me tell you how it's more. Purity becomes a powerful partner in avoiding partiality. If Timothy is going to do what Timothy needs to do, he not only has to have his head on straight, he has to have his heart on straight. His heart has to reflect his head, and his head has to reflect his heart. And these two have to be in agreement so that when the pastor says, please don't do that, please refrain from doing this, this is going to cause harm to you, and it's going to cause harm to the church. Please don't do it. This powerful Purity will help Timothy to exercise the judgment that he's going to need, but also purity is going to provide protection for the pastor and the church. It's going to provide protection for the church and for the pastor because everyone who really knows him will be able to Remind themselves, again, because this person acts in a way that's consistent with purity. And then he says in verse 23, 
care for your physical health. In what sense? You've probably read this a million times. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now, some people who struggle with alcohol dependence have fled to this verse for comfort and support. They'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and they'll say, See, I can drink if I want to. Right here in 1 Timothy, he's told to drink some wine. I concede that it does say that. But let's think about it in context. And forgive me for always coming back to the context. What is the context? Leaders in the church. Paul is speaking to the pastor, to the leaders, to the elders. He's already said that they can't be given to much wine. And the very fact that Paul says, no longer drink only water, implies that that is exactly what Timothy had done. He was only drinking water. He was a teetotaler. He completely abstained from strong drink. But since Timothy was suffering some sort of ongoing physical issue, Paul encourages him. Look, read it for yourself. To use a little wine for your stomach's sake. That word little may not seem like an important word to you. It doesn't mean use a lot of wine. And look what it says. For your stomach's sake. Not for your tongue's sake. Not for your palate's sake. Not for your whole body's sake. Not for social's sake. Not to get a buzz. Not to self-medicate over the rigors of ministry. Do you know what this little wine is? It's probably a tablespoon. Maybe two tablespoons. This would be like the amount of NyQuil that you take when you have a cold. And because of that, I'm going to suggest to you that the charge isn't just simply take a little wine because you're sick. That there's probably something way more important in this passage. I think what Paul is saying is don't neglect your health. He had health issues. It's clear from the text. So instead of ignoring health issues, pastors have to come to grips with their health issues. I am so sinful in this area. I'm such a bad witness and I'm such a bad pastor. When I got pneumonia, I still wanted to come to church. I still wanted to teach. And the doctor said, if you don't take care of yourself, you could die. Now, hopefully he didn't say that for dramatic effect. He just simply, he's trying to help me understand that health issues have to be taken seriously. And so when he says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine. Note what the passage doesn't say. It doesn't say tequila shots are okay. It doesn't say pitchers of sangria. Clearly the meaning isn't simply in the manner and the amount of alcohol. It means take care of your health, guard your health. And so the pastor has to exercise and eat right. The the pastor should eat healthy, should have regular checkups. The body is more than, than that which houses the mind or the spirit. So what about alcohol consumption? 
What about the prohibitions? Clearly, Paul allows a little alcohol for medicinal purposes and condemns drunkenness. So where do we go to get our answers? And I think you know, the Christian is given great liberty. The Christian is given enormous freedom. But in that freedom, mature Christians and sensible Christians exercise self-control, exercise moderation, exercise discipline. It's not my job to tell you to drink or not drink. There's certain people who can't drink under any circumstance. You know who you are. I've made the decision in my life that drinking is not an option for me. It's not good for me. It's not good for me, not just simply as a pastor, but it's not good for me because I grew up in a home where alcohol was abused profoundly. And then I grew up in a world prior to becoming a Christian where I abused drugs and alcohol profusely. So for me, it's not a good choice. And then look what it says. Leave certain judgments to God. In what sense? Look what it says. Some men's sins are clearly evident, proceeding from them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. What in the world does that mean? Some men's sins are clearly evident. Sometimes it's fairly obvious when a person's abusing drugs or alcohol or sexually immoral or doing something weird or wicked or stupid or obvious that's going to lead to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Some people's sins are very, fairly obvious. And some are secret and hidden. And you don't always know about them. This is something that, that we don't know about. Now, think for just a moment. Pastors deal with people. And when you deal with people, you deal with sins. People who deal with people deal with sins. And so we're often tempted. We deal with weakness. We deal with strength. We deal with vice. We deal with virtue. And so sometimes we're tempted to pass judgment on others inappropriately or prematurely. We don't always look at the facts. We're not able to always discern motives. We see certain things clearly, but we see other things less than clear. So what is Paul saying? I'm going to suggest to you that what he's saying is leave the judgment of others to God. Why? Because sin isn't always clearly seen. And because the good isn't always clearly seen. We don't always know the bad and we don't always know the good. We don't always are able to see and discern the consequences. And so in verse 25 it says, Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So when he says, likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident. When people are praying, giving, serving, loving, participating in the life of, ch of the church, who, who are helping and ministering and encouraging and providing, it becomes fairly obvious. And again, you know who you are. You know who you are when a person says, I need 
help. We need, my, my wife is pregnant or another person is disabled or a person's been in a car accident and they need meals or they need this or they need that or their house is burnt down or all kinds of things happen and they need, their car has been stolen. They need food. They need shelter. They need help. They need support. And then all of a sudden the church gathers together and men and women begin to pray and they begin to provide and encourage each other and provide the support. It's fairly clearly evident who's giving, serving, loving, participating. And those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. In other words, the people who remain in sin and selfishness, eventually it's going to be seen. Again, one Bible writer says, quote, both verses 24 and 25 explain why Paul instructed Timothy to choose church leaders carefully. Hasty assessment of men for leadership positions could mean overlooking sins or good qualities. Then unqualified men might be chosen and qualified men set aside. The hard fact is that in time, a man's true personality is revealed. For better or worse, it is far better for the church when leaders are carefully and prayerfully selected, unquote. Given enough time and the right amount of pressure, who you really are will leak out. You can fake people for a little while. But you can't fake it all the time. Every time. No wonder Abraham Lincoln said, you can fool some of the people some of the time. And all of the people some of the time. But you can't fool all the people all the time. And so when it comes to church leaders... Paul says, for the sake of the church, leaders need support. Leaders are the special targets of Satan's attacks. For this reason, the scripture gives special instructions to guard them against false accusations, but also to hold them accountable and responsible when things aren't right and they need to change. And once again, the church is to be serious about sin. No matter if it comes from outside the church, within the church, or within the church leadership. For the sake of the church, Timothy needed to be fair. For the sake of the church, Timothy needed to avoid partiality and favoritism. For the sake of the church, Timothy had to exercise pastoral discipline. And then he also had to make sure that he was disciplined enough to take care of himself. I'm going to suggest to you that all of this information is going to help you in the not-too-distant future. But... We, we get to stop now. You know, my wife says, you don't have a conclusion? I go, this is my conclusion. The end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we, um, again, want to take seriously what the Bible says. Lord, we want to be patient, kind, generous, wise. Lord, we know that love has to be informed by knowledge and discernment. And Lord, we know that it, it's not unloving to take love and add knowledge, add discernment, add wisdom. Lord, we, in humility, recognize that we don't know everything about everything. But also, Lord, the things that you've revealed to us, the things you've shared with us, the things you've instructed to us, the things you've entrusted to us, that, Lord, we would take to heart, that, Lord, we would want to be men and women who love you, that we don't want to bring any kind of disgrace and we don't want to bring any kind of dishonor to the gospel or to Jesus or to each other or to the church. And so, Lord, we pray that you would keep us mindful, that, Lord, we would guard our hearts and our purity and if for some reason we fall into trouble, that, Lord, we would quickly repent, that we would acknowledge what we've done wrong, that we would be willing to forsake our sin and embrace the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that's available for each and every one of us who, for whatever reason, have temporarily lost our way. And so again, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.